We're glad that you're here. Now, last fall, we studied the Gospel of John, focusing specifically on Jesus's truly, truly statements that are spread throughout the book. There are 20 to 25 of them from beginning to end. And that was all well and good. I hope we all learned a great deal about Jesus as we did that. However, our approach meant that we didn't devote much attention to some very important parts of the book. And when we got done with that sermon series, it bothered me enough to think that this spring we're going to come back to the Gospel of John to cover what we missed. So between now and Easter, we're going to fill in the gaps of the Gospel of John. And by the end of it, I pray that we'll have an even better understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done than we did before. So open your Bibles to John chapter 2. Feel free to follow along as we go. We have Bibles here to use if you need one, and you can take one home as well. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, thank you for Sunday morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here with your people and worship you. Thank you for the new faces here this morning and the past few weeks. I pray that we would be welcoming and hospitable. And thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ who we know and love so well and so much. Uh, As Craig said earlier in the service, it's just a great privilege and a great joy to have a church family and siblings in Christ. And I thank you for the people who are here in this church this morning. I pray that our worship would be honoring to you. Thank you that with all of the unrest in the world, we can still gather here and hear from your word and sing your praises and pray to you and remember Christ's body and blood. Uh, Thank you for Sunday morning. I pray it will be honoring to you and helpful for us. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we discussed a few months ago, the Apostle John is not at all embarrassed to admit that he writes with an agenda. And we see that agenda in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes there. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John also makes Jesus's identity clear in the opening chapter of the book. From the very get-go, he calls Jesus the word who was with God and was God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Messiah, the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, and the King of Israel. Again, John has an agenda as he writes. He writes to tell us that Jesus is God in the flesh. To convince us to believe in his name in order that we may have eternal life. Now, of course, those are all bold claims that John makes about Jesus. I suppose the real question then is this. Can Jesus actually back it up? That's why we have John chapters 2 through 12. 
often referred to as the book of signs. John has recorded miracles that Jesus performed to show the disciples, to show the watching world, and to show the people who read his gospel even 2,000 years later, people like us, that Jesus really is who John says he is. And the first of those signs, the first of those miracles, comes in our passage today. And that's John chapter 2. So, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there. For a few days, there are several details in this passage that deserve further discussion. So, first, let's talk about the overall context, and that is a wedding. Being that Mary, Jesus, and his disciples were all invited, it's safe to assume that this was a wedding for a family member or a friend. And given Mary's interest in the wine situation, some even wonder if she may have been involved in the planning or the catering. Weddings in the ancient world were long, drawn-out celebrations that could last up to a week. And if you're curious, the groom had to foot the bill. And as the father of three boys, this is one way that I am proudly not biblical. So that's the wedding. But next, let's talk about the wine. Wine was a staple in the ancient world, and it was used far more liberally, far more flexibly than we use it today. Wine could be used for medicinal purposes or to purify water that was far less sanitized than what we're used to. As a result, the wine that most people drank in the ancient world was likely much weaker than what we drink today. Nevertheless, the Bible does still warn us about the sin of drunkenness. So it was alcohol. And in the context of this wedding, 
running out of wine would have been a significant social embarrassment. It was the ultimate ancient party foul. But that's exactly what happens in John 2. It's a disaster. But third, let's talk about the interaction between Jesus and Mary, especially in verse 4. Many have observed, and to some degree exaggerated, just how short Jesus is with his mother, calling her woman. Why does Jesus come across as a little bit cranky in verse 4? Well, the best answer is this. That at this moment in Jesus' life, after he's been baptized, assembled disciples, and basically started his ministry, Jesus makes it clear that nobody but God, not even his own mother, but nobody but God sets his agenda. Jesus is operating on God's time. That's why variations of this phrase, his hour not yet coming, that phrase will pop up again as we continue in the book. And fourth, of course, we have to talk about the miracle itself. The purification jars that Jesus used to contain this wine could have held up to 180 gallons. And amidst this wedding day crisis, straight out of a reality show on TLC, Jesus miraculously fills those purification jars with wine. Now, it was certainly a nice gesture to save this family from such great shame. But really, verse 11 tells us the main point of this miracle. And honestly, every other miracle. Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's the point of the miracle. But before we move ahead in the chapter, there's one more question worth asking. Why did Jesus make so much wine? In Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, the Old Testament prophet says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. One of the earliest church leaders named Irenaeus records a prophecy about the day of the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And that prophecy said that when the Messiah comes, there would be vines with 10,000 branches. And on every branch, 10,000 shoots. And on every shoot, 10,000 clusters. And in every cluster, 10,000 grapes. And pressed from every single grape, 25 measures of wine. In short, the expectation was that when the Messiah arrives, 
the celebratory wine will flow. And based on how much wine Jesus made at Cana, it's safe to say that the day of the Messiah is here. But this is not the only event in John chapter 2. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, if you know your Gospels well, you may recognize that this event feels a bit out of place. And that's because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this event, or at least an event that seems almost identical to it, happens at the very end of Jesus' ministry, right before he dies. Not at the very beginning. Some suggest that John is less concerned with a perfectly, chronologically accurate report of Jesus' ministry. Which would be fine, by the way. John has every right to creatively and uniquely present the story in his own way. Still others suggest that Jesus actually cleared out the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. Now the truth is that we don't know for sure which option is better. But quite frankly, in the big scheme of things, it's not something to be troubled about. What's more important is to see that Jesus was not happy about something. Now, what was it? The temple was his father's house. The temple was the tangible sign of the heavenly God's presence with his people on earth. But his fellow Jews had corrupted it. They took this sacred space and turned it into a farmer's market. On top of that, they were likely charging exorbitant prices for those animals exploiting just how seriously people took their sacrifices. So Jesus, in righteous anger, runs them out with their tails between their legs and claims Old Testament warrant for doing it. Now, you couldn't blame those Jews for not being very happy about Jesus' actions. But when they confront him about it, 
demanding an explanation, Jesus changes their focus. He refers not to the building, but to his own body as God's temple. He even insists that if they destroy his body, three days later, it will rise. And it would only become clear to the disciples, after Jesus rose from the dead, that he wasn't talking about the building. So we've got these two events in John chapter 2. Turning water into wine and clearing out the temple. The first one is nothing short of a miracle. The other one is simply exciting. But how do these two stories fit together? What do they have in common? Well, with both of these events, one thing becomes very apparent. In Jesus, something better has arrived. Something better has arrived. We see it with the purification jars. We see it with the wine. And we see it with the temple. As we asked earlier, why did Jesus feel the need to fill those massive purification jars? Those were for ceremonial washing, not for drinking. Well, maybe one takeaway is this, that Jesus offers a better purification. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews goes into great effort to explain the Old Testament temple, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament rites of purification. But then he says in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and poles And the sprinkling of deviled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The sacrificial system in the Old Testament had its purpose. It had its time. It had its place. God laid it down for a good reason. However, it was never truly sufficient for purification in the deepest sense. It might cleanse you on the outside, but it didn't cleanse you on the inside. It might cleanse you for a while, but it wouldn't cleanse you forever. It's only when Jesus arrives And offers his own body and his own blood, not of goats, not of bulls, but his own body and his own blood for purification from sin. Only then is purification truly achieved. Jesus is better. As for the wine, 
Remember the master's amazement when he tasted how good it was. How he couldn't believe that they saved the best wine for last. That wasn't normal. You serve the good wine first and the cheap stuff, cheap stuff later for reasons I probably don't need to explain. Well, similar to how Jesus provides better purification, Jesus also provides better wine. Jeremiah 31 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. It is an explicit prophecy that looks ahead to the coming of Christ. But Jeremiah writes in verse 12, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. God's people had been languishing for the Messiah to finally come. And that Messiah arrives in the person and work of Christ to where they don't have to thirst. We don't have to thirst anymore. And as for the temple, that building really was great. But to be honest, even in the Old Testament, the God of the universe has never really needed a building. So along with better purification, along with better wine, Jesus has provided a better temple in his own flesh and blood. As we read in John 1 verse 18, Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Only Jesus, not a building, can be called God's presence on earth in the fullest sense of the phrase. Simply put, Jesus is better. Better purification, better wine, better temple. In God's good timing, he sent something new. Something better in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But how might that apply to us? It seems that every human being is looking for something. We want to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. We want to feel like our lives have meaning, purpose, and significance. We want a sense of joy and rest and peace. And we will go to all kinds of lengths to find those things. We will work ourselves to death to reach our goals. We'll study hard to get the necessary education to achieve our dreams. We will invest hours of time and thousands of dollars in our appearance if it helps us get ahead. We'll save up like misers to build up our 401ks and have some sense of security. We will do and say whatever is necessary to get approval from people around us, whether it's those we know in real life or those on the Internet we'll never even meet. Jesus is better 
than all of that stuff. Whatever we already have, whatever it is that we're after, Jesus is better. Everything else is transitory. It's passing away. Anything this fallen world, the flesh, or the devil offers you is ultimately fool's gold. It will let you down. Whatever else you're living for, whatever else you're serving, whatever else you're worshiping, whatever you're doing to try to justify your existence, whatever you're doing to try and gain approval from God and or men and women, Jesus is better than all of it. He is better than all of it. Hebrews 10 tells us about the travails of suffering believers, which we've mentioned a little bit earlier in the service. These people are alienated, sometimes put in prison, and at other times subjected to economic hardship, all because of their faith in Christ. Now you might look at them and think, why would someone voluntarily subject themselves to such trauma? Well, Hebrews 10 verse 34 tells us they knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They knew they had a better possession. These suffering believers in Hebrews 10 and many like them today joyfully gave up social standing, personal freedoms and property because they had something better. They had Jesus. And if we ever find ourselves in a similar boat which seems easier to imagine with each passing day, may the same be true of us. May we remember that we have something better and thus be willing to lose everything else. And if you haven't believed yet, then by God's grace through faith, know that you too can have the same thing. You can have that something that someone better than everything else. He is better than everything before. He's better than whatever may come after. In fact, he's so much better that he's worth suffering for. He's worth dying for. So with that in mind, as Mary told the servants in John chapter 2, verse 5, Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Because he is so much better than anyone and anything else. May we press on in obeying, worshiping, and loving him, knowing that it won't always be easy, but it will always be worth it. Because he is so much better. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for your word that we have the privilege of reading and hearing and thinking about and chewing on.
And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear that by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, you would soften our hearts, you would open our minds to help us know what this means for us, what these words mean for us as we leave this place and go to our jobs and go to our homes and go to our schools and wherever else that you send us. Help us really grasp that you are better than everything else. You are not just one of many things that we love. You're not just one item on the list of things that we care about, but you are in a totally different category. And everything in this world that we care about, everything that we love, every role that we fill, every responsibility that we have, it all falls under the umbrella of worship and love and obedience to you. So, Lord, help us put you first in all things at all times because you are so much more important than every other rival. You are so much better than anything else we could or would live for. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can be purified from sin, that the Messiah has come. And, Lord, thank you that When we look at Jesus, we see you. I pray that you'd watch over us, guide us, protect us in the week ahead. Help us glorify you with what we say and do. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.